Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is an author who needs no introduction. Uh, His name is William F. Strong. Uh, He's a student of all things Texas. And he began sharing stories from Texas vignettes on public radio stations, most recently on the Texas Standard News Show's 30 stations. For this book celebrating his home state, Strong has collected 75 of his broadcasts. You'll hear his inimitably Texan voice in your mind's ear as he weaves stories on subjects ranging from how to talk Texan to Texas bards and troubadours, from tall Texas tales to lone star icons like Charles Goodnight, Tom Landry, and Bluebell Ice Cream, from legends and unsung heroes of the past to some heartfelt memories of his own, Strong agrees with John Steinbeck that Texas is a state of mind, a mystique closely approximating a religion, and every one of his stories embraces the Texas state of mind. Dr. Strong, welcome to the program. Thank you. You know, if you're going to be an authentic takes and you're gonna to have to slow down okay well let me work on that <laughs> well let's start with how this all came about so uh, it says on the on the back of the book then in 2000 you began sharing stories from Texas but that's a lie isn't it that is well you notice on the front it says some of them are true uh-huh. so uh, I have coverage for anything and everything but no that's a typo it's so it's supposed to be uh, 2010 and actually, uh, it's going into second printing now. They're correcting that. Oh, very good. So I know you'll feel better. Okay, so let's let's talk about how this came about. You ditched me in our Good Books radio <laughs> program and left me holding the bag to go do your own thing. And it worked out well for you. But it didn't start out as a book. In fact, you had no intention of writing a book, right? No, I didn't. Like I said in the, in the foreword that... Uh, uh, you know, most books, I think most books uh, don't start out in someone's mind uh, where they're going to write a book. For me, I was just doing radio stories and trying to do a good job with them. And as they became more popular, I thought, well, maybe a book. And uh, even then, it didn't turn into one. I just got a call one day about a year ago, actually, from um, Barry uh, Schlachter of Great Texas Line Press. It's a small publisher in Fort Worth. And he had heard my stories on the radio up there, and he called and he said, would you consider doing a book? And I said, well, actually, I have a manuscript right here on my desk, and I'm ready to send it to uh, Texas A&M Press. And he said, well, don't do that. Let me see it first. And so I sent it to him, and about a week later, he had sent it out to other people, and he said, needs some revision, it needs some strengthening, uh, bolstering here and there, some restructuring, reorganization. But uh, if you agree to do all those things, I'll give you a contract. So I said, okay, I'll do all those things. It's taken a year to do all those reorganization, restructuring, uh, bolstering that he wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, go back to the radio show because uh, when you first started, mm-hmm. it was Rio Grande Valley Public Radio that picked up the stories. Tell us how the others picked it up. Well, it picked the others picked it up because I sent out... Uh, CDs of the stories to um, a lot of the NPR stations in Texas. About, I think I started out just sending it to about eight of them, and two of them started playing them. And the Commerce and El Paso, they liked them and they played them. And I also put them on the PRX network, which was part of, which is the NPR sharing network. And then stations, I mean, get this, a, a station in New Jersey picked up the stories and played them. I have no idea why, Fantastic. why they would be playing them in New Jersey. <laughs> And then they got played on Sirius Radio through the PRX network. And so through this, uh, and I don't mean all the time, but just kind of sporadically they would be played. And uh, somewhere along the line, uh, 
Emily Donahue, who's the managing director, was for Texas Standard Radio Network News mm-hmm. in Austin. She heard them, and she called me, and she said, this fits very well with our program. Would you do some stories for us? And so, yes, and for three years now, I have been doing them. Mm-hmm. Now, you quote John Steinbeck, as I mentioned in the, in the mm-hmm. introduction, as saying that there's a Texas mystique that closely approximates religion. Mm-hmm. I think about that in relation to any number of Texas-centric culture items. One of my favorite columnists is also quoted here, Molly Ivins. She says, oh, a Texas-centric Ivins, yes. culture, mm-hmm. which is a state of mind of many of your loyal followers. High school football comes to mind, but what else <laughs> would you point out that Texans see as powerfully influential mm-hmm. in this? Well, I, I think if you uh, want to, one of the things I make, I make a point in one of the stories, I say, if you could gather all of Texas culture into one football stadium, which would be the right place to put it, mm-hmm. because, <laughs> you know, we are football, you would have to have these various sections committed to certain things. And uh, I think, um, you know, Texas brand of country music would certainly be, you probably have a whole section for Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you have, of course, rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes are huge. Uh, uh, the great uh, J. Frank Doby wrote an entire book about just rattlesnakes mm-hmm. and rattlesnake stories. In fact, on my uh, Facebook page, my t- Stories from Texas Facebook page, which is pretty big, I can guarantee you that if I just put a picture of a rattlesnake, it'll be shared like crazy. It's, a- it's always going to be successful if I put a picture of a rattlesnake. Uh-huh. Horny totes, big deal. <laughs> you know, that's Texas too. Uh, naturally, the fierce independent spirit is, is another one. And uh, to be not only fiercely independent as an individual, but to be independent as a state. Uh, so that, you know, it's very well known that many Texans, when they travel, they just say they're Texan. Mm-hmm. You don't say I'm from the United States or American say. I'm Texan because most places you go in the world, they know what that is. They, mm-hmm. they know what a Texan is, no mm-hmm. problem. One percent of the world is Texan. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the first section of your book, uh, okay. Talking Texas. Mm-hmm. Can you enunciate for us the mispronunciations you enumerate in the book? <laughs> well, you know, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek that there are uh, a lot of things that we mispronounce, and then a lot of Texans say, no, the rest of the world's mispronouncing them. Uh, we're, we're correct. But um, what page is that on? I don't uh, 13, even, 14. 13 and 14. It kind of reminds me when I was, you know, when we had our uh, our textbook that, you know, that we wrote years ago, and we used that textbook in class, and I remember a, a student was talking about something. Uh, no, I was referencing something in the book. I said, it's in chapter three or four, and the student and a student in class said, well, you don't know what chapter it's in? You're, you wrote the book. And I said, well, I don't stay up every night reading this book. And he said, well, neither do we. <laughs> okay, so the mispronunciation, and, and I call it mispronunciating in Texas because I just uh, like that particular title, too, because it goes along with the theme to, to um, have that kind of verbal error. Anyway, I'm not going to go through all of them, but one, a couple that I really like, uh, of course, Whataburger is just infamous in Texas. Um, I grew up as a kid saying Whataburger, uh, and then Whataburger is naturally the way it's supposed to be said, but lots of people say Whataburger. And here's two of my favorite, uh, uh, Bob War, Bob War. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say Bob War. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was about 18 before I figured out that it was barbed wire. I saw it in print finally, and I said, oh, 
It's not Bob Wire <laughs> or Bob War. And then the one that's closely related to that is uh, uh, Chester Drawers. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up with Chester Drawers and uh, learned later there, Chest of Drawers. So for years, I just thought Bob made wire mm-hmm. and Chester made drawers, <laughs> whoever the hell they were. That's pert near correct, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Bob Wire, I heard the first time uh, when I moved to Lubbock uh-huh. when I was working at Texas Tech and Somebody said, ain't nothing between the North Pole and Lubbock but a few stretches of bob wire. <laughs> and that's when I knew what a bob wire was. Well, there's a, there's a great story about uh, uh, Admiral Perry when he reached the North Pole. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he said when he stepped foot on what was geographically the North Pole, he said, oh, my God, it must be a cold day in Amarillo. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been known to use the Texas national verb. Fixing. Talk about that piece in the book. I'm fixing to do this or that. I'm fixing to, yes. Well, that, uh, it is a southern expression. It's not uniquely Texan, but I, I think since we're naturally the, the biggest of the southern states, we tend to use it more and be known for it. And it's a very efficient verb, uh, I think, because it uh, it is efficient and it's flexible. You can You can express a lot of things with it. And one of the parts I like about it is um, uh, the. Let me sh- get this part right here, and I'll I'll share the particular wording. I said, if you told me I couldn't use fixin' to, like many Texans, I would be grammatically paralyzed for a while. <laughs> I have no backup at this position. I have no other verb sitting on the bench ready to go in. Oh, I could send in preparing to or getting ready to, but neither of these is as good a grammatical scrambler as fixin' to. Fixin' to has it all. It can run, it can pass, it can stall for time, and it can run out the clock. Mm-hmm. So you can't beat fixin' to. I'm, I'm fixin' to do this in just a minute, which usually means uh, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, the saying goes that everything's bigger in Texas. Share some of that part of the book, the size matters part of the book. Well, the one thing that we've struggled with, uh, I think, for uh, <laughs> you know, some time, ever since Alaska became part of the Union, mm-hmm. is that we were always the biggest. And so suddenly, you have this state that's more than twice the size of Texas, and Texans you know, kind of suffered psychological trauma over this notion. But I like to point out that uh, Alaska wouldn't be a state if Texas hadn't made her one. <laughs> we were big enough to let Alaska be bigger. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is that, and this is honest to God, the truth, is that Alaska was wanting statehood for a long time, but it wasn't going anywhere because it was politically difficult to make Alaska a state, as always it would be for any new state to be added. It upsets the balance in Congress and everything. But uh, Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn, were the big powerhouses in the Congress at the time, and they pushed it through. Hmm. They said, let's make Alaska a state. And, uh, of course, it wasn't philanthropy. There was oil there. Of course. And Texas could help them get that oil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Now, as far as the other part, uh, you know, the size matters in Texas, I go through, uh, you know, a lot of examples of things about uh, how Texas used to be as a state about uh, 25% bigger than it is today. It went all the way up into modern-day Wyoming. So, I mean, that's quite a stretch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so when we became part of the union, they, they cut us down to size. They made us smaller um, for various political reasons. But we also got uh, $10 million for sharing off, I mean, for selling off our land, mm-hmm. which uh, 
worked out to about uh, seven cents an acre. So it, <laughs> we really got screwed on that deal. <laughs> it's a lousy real estate mm-hmm. deal. So you mentioned the subtitle of your book, Stories from Texas. The subtitle is Some of Them Are True. Mm-hmm. Talk about that in relation to tales of Texas past. How is it that we got to be the best exaggerators in the United States? <laughs> Well, I think part of it is geography. You know, here we are in this very diverse state. You know, we have enormous forests, uh, the big thicket in the east, and we have uh, high mountains uh, in the west. Uh, and they may not be so tall, but they're uh, rugged and desert-like, and, and uh, they have, a, you know, temperatures out in Big Bend, you know, go to 110, 115. So we had this landscape that was uh, varied. And uh, and it and it was distant from the rest of the country, and so it produced people that were fiercely independent and strong and uh, and determined, you might say, to to live on their own. I mean, those Texans who lived out on the frontier, uh, facing the Comanches and the Apaches, those were incredibly brave people to be to be out there. I mean, uh, a lot of them, of course, died and died in very um, ugly ways for just wanting land, I guess. Uh, so in any case, these, the stories that came out of uh, this kind of wild geography would naturally be wild and exaggerated too, but it goes way back, you know, these, you can see old postcards from Texas in the 1800s of, you know, giant jackrabbits with cowboys riding on mm-hmm. the backs of giant uh, jackrabbits. And you can see um, uh, lots of jokes about how long it took to, to cross Texas. There was a story, this, uh, Texan, excuse me, I forget the name of the, the guy who said it, but uh, he was trying to point out how, how big Texas was. He said if a, if a family was uh, came into Texarkana with a uh, newborn baby uh, on a covered wagon, in a covered wagon, and they traveled all the way to El Paso, uh, by the time they got to El Paso, that child would be in the fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they repeat the third grade. <laughs> Well, I want our listeners, or should I say my listeners, now that you've ditched this program, I want our listeners to know about the Colt six-shooter, because that's a big deal. Yes, it is. Well, in fact, this goes along with what you just asked about the, you know, Texans, the the exaggerated size of the state, and the people, because it was uh, uh, Colt who invented the six-shooter, and it was so heavy that he said, it'll take a Texan to hold it. (laughs) (laughs) So, but anyway, it's interesting, because the... The six shoot. Well, it was actually before that there was a five shooter, mm-hmm. and the five shooter uh, wasn't going anywhere. You couldn't sell it to the army. They were still into long guns and rifles, bayonets, and nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted those pistols. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Texas Rangers had picked them up, and they discovered that in fighting the Comanches, these were exceptionally valuable. Uh, because they were really getting beat up by the Comanches because the Comanches were better horsemen and the Comanches uh, already had a rapid-fire weapon called a bow and arrow mm-hmm. and they could put seven arrows uh, you know, in a ranger while he was reloading his long rifle. And so they were really at a disadvantage until the uh, five-shooter came along because it allowed them not to reload, obviously, and it was good at close-quarter combat. And uh, there was a guy named uh, Samuel Walker, not uh, uh, you know, not uh, Cordell Walker's relative or anything. <laughs> but this, this is Walker, Texas Ranger. This right? is Walker, Texas Ranger, For the real, real okay. Walker, Texas Ranger. Mm-hmm. And he was part of this group that was fighting the Comanches. And uh, so he went up to talk to um, Samuel Colt, 
and uh, he said, here's what we need, and he helped him rest- remake that gun to make it stronger, make it heavier so it was good for hitting people on the head in battle, uh, and, and made it a six-shooter for better balance and uh, and all of that. And that's why, you know, Colt, when he produced it, it was so much heavier than the five-shooter. He said, he said, my God, it's going to take a Texan to hold this uh-huh. thing. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he, you know, they took that back, and, and this is another interesting thing. When... Uh, Zachary Taylor was going to invade Mexico in the Mexican-American War. He wanted a bunch of Texas Rangers to come along as scouts because they were obviously well known for this sort of guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, we'll come, but we want some Colt Six shooters. So he ordered a thousand of them. And here's another little tidbit mm-hmm. is that since uh, Walker, I mean, excuse me, uh, Samuel Colt at the time, he didn't have uh, even the prototype to work with because, you know, it, it had never gone anywhere. He was virtually bankrupt. He had to put an ad in the paper to get someone who had one to sell it back to him. Oh, my god! And gosh. he used that as a prototype. And then he got uh, Eli Whitney, who invented the cotton gin. Mm-hmm. Eli Whitney helped him produce the guns. Yeah, Eli Whitney's also known for making interchangeable parts. So mm-hmm. that was a so great help was the manufacturing, right? And so they, so that's anyway how it got made. And I always like to say that this was uh, the best marketing Colt could ever had because he had the Texas Rangers with his guns, mm-hmm. and and the other Army guys would see the Rangers with them, and they'd say, "I want those." And then, of course, the average man wanted them too. Now, and they, that's why they call it the uh, another version of it was the Peacemaker, which uh, you know the famous saying that uh, God made some men big and some men small. But Samuel Colt made equals of them all. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I think Wyatt Earp had one of those at, at <clears> one time as well. I also remember when you recorded the show, t- us talking about Judge Roy Bean. Oh, I love yeah. Judge Roy Bean. Here's a chance to separate fact from legend. Uh, <laughs> well, one of the things I, I like to say is that, uh, you know, Judge Roy Bean was famous for saying, try him first and hang him later. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had this real tough talk. But uh, fact of the matter is, we can't find evidence he actually hung anybody. And I'm sad about that. Is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was really kind of a a prankster, you might say, in a way. He was a he was a P.T. Barnum with a badge, uh, where he liked uh, theater. He liked uh, to to put on the big con. And uh, what he would do often is he would find you know some particularly young guy. He liked to do this to the younger ones that were accused of something pretty bad, but maybe not murder. And he would put them in jail and, and have a trial and tell them they're going to be hung tomorrow. He would build the gallows so they could see it being built. And then at night he would leave the door open so they could escape. <laughs> and then they would escape and he would never, they would never be seen in those parts again. You know, So it was his way of running out the riffraff, uh, scaring them good. And... Uh, and, and keeping his reputation as the law and order or law and order uh, judge. Now there was a judge over in Fort Stockton who did hang a lot of people. So there are those who feel like the the you know the myth got merged uh-huh. with uh-huh. this other guy. But he he was a lot of fun. I mean he would have been a fun guy to hang out with. Uh, <laughs> my favorite thing that he would do is he had the the saloon right there on the railroad track, and uh, the, so the railroad track. I mean excuse me the, the railroad. Uh, would stop its uh, train there and people would get out to get drinks in the saloon. But he never had any change. 
So if someone got a, a beer, let's say for a quarter, and they they paid a dollar, then he would not give them their change because he would never have any. They say, "But you owe me seventy-five cents." And then if they raised too much hell, he would fine them seventy-five cents for disturbing the peace. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking mm-hmm. of icons. How about a man that needs no introduction, our coach of the Dallas Cowboys? What struck you when researching our Texas icon, Tom Landry? I got the idea for looking into Landry. I said, what am I going to say about Landry that hasn't already been said? I'm I'm aware that uh, most people, when they think of Landry, they think of one word, class. Mm -hmm. That's often the thing, one classy man. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, given the great love there is for the man, that uh, if you were to list the top ten Texans of all time, you would have uh, Davy Crockett, and you would have Sam Houston, and you would have Tom Landry. I mean, he would be up there, kind of in the top ten, even though he didn't live in those times. But what, as I started looking at it, I said, I wonder what his best season of football was. You know, obviously he won Super Bowls, two Super Bowls. He was was in five, and in some of the really... uh, uh, most classic playoff games before there was even a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I said, I wonder what his best season was. And I started looking back, and I found interesting that his finest season, the truly undefeated season, was high school. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time writing about about that season where his team uh, was only scored on once in the entire season. Wow. And they won essentially the state championship that year. And, and they played uh, uh, both uh, offense and defense. So he was on both sides of the ball. He was quarterback, and then he was defensive back. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny because uh, the one touchdown made against them was scored by Donna High School, and uh, it was a, there was an interference call in the end zone, and it was Landry's fault. Oh, wow. And so his friends said to him later, well, it's kind of interesting when uh, you're the only one who made pro among us, and yet you were the weak link in our season. (laughs) I I may ask you to pick some of your favorite Mm -hmm. stories if we have time, Mm -hmm. but first, let's talk about the listener's obsession with Lonesome Dove. That apparently catches more attention than anything else. I like to say the Lonesome Dove is kind of the Iliad of Texas. Uh, it is much admired, and but of course it's really more the movie than the book, mm-hmm. because that's what most people have seen. I mean, the book is 900 pages, so most people aren't going to crawl through that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I personally love it, but uh, I'm a reader. Right. And actually, there are four. There are four books in the Lonesome Dove series. So I'm always writing to people. And they say, I'm so sad there's no more Lonesome Dove. I say, well, you got three more. <laughs> there's three more in the series. There are two that are prequels and one that is a sequel to the Lonesome Dove itself. So Lonesome Dove is the third. The book itself is the third in the series. But what's interesting, to uh, I think the reason it strikes uh, most people as being a beautiful story is because uh, it is about uh, you know a journey a long journey of real men, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, but it has love, it has a love story in it as well. But And then there's lots of good quotes, just lots, of, I mean, you could take a hundred uh, quotes out of that movie slash book, and, uh, and you could make a book of the Lonesome Dove Bible, you know, the, uh, what you might call maxims to live by. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rivers, uh, yes, Yesterday's gone on down the river, and you can't get it back. So, you know, don't, <laughs> don't cry over spilled milk. And then another very popular one is about uh, <clears throat> when Captain Call gives his son Newt a gun for the first time because they're going on a raid into Mexico. And he says, uh, he says, well, I think you're a little young, but it's better to have it not need it than need it not have it. Mm-hmm. So people like that. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as far as uh, you know, Lonesome Dove itself, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting about it is that McMurtry wrote it as a screenplay 15 years before, before it actually was published as a novel. Huh. It was written as a screenplay in Hollywood. Was It was kind of rejected because uh, John Wayne was supposed to play in it, and he... He was supposed to play Captain Call, and he was a little reluctant to play an old cowboy just yet. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy Stewart was supposed to be in it, and uh, and so a lot of people are happy that they didn't do it because they can't imagine it done with anybody other than Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. But um, it did. It just kind of sat on the shelf for about 15 years, and then Mc, uh, McMurtry bought it back from Hollywood and made it into uh, a novel. And finally, the last thing interesting is that McMurtry wrote Lonesome Dove to convince people that the way the life of the cowboy was brutal. It was nothing to be romanticized. It was a difficult, harsh, ugly life in many ways. Sleeping out uh, in in the wild with scorpions and and old and and you know dusty trails and and uh, cattle, mm-hmm. <laughs> smelly cattle, mm. uh, and and what was strange, and he said this himself, he said, I tried to de-romanticize the cowboy, and I ended up providing two of the most glamorized, most uh, longed-for cowboys in all of um, literature. And that still hangs, even yeah. on your, your uh, uh, social network pages, uh, oh, yeah. people just rave over any picture of Lonesome That's Dove, right. right, yeah. Well, we'd be remiss of being residents of the Rio Grande Valley if we didn't address Dos Mundos, Talk to us about the merging of Mexican and Texas cultures in terms of language. There's a couple of good sections in there, Spanish for gringos and lingo for gringos. <laughs> and uh, I really enjoyed that. So, Well, uh, this I, I have to say that my, my lovely wife, Lupita, was, of course, uh, exceptionally uh, helpful in helping put these together. And uh, so the, the Spanish for gringos, well, the, the one I really like uh, the most is the one about ten words all all Texans should mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. and as you know, we become increasingly a um, bicultural state. I mean, it used to be that uh, when I was a kid, uh, the white population in Texas was about eighty percent, seventy five percent of the state, and now in just a few years, we're going to be uh, mostly an Hispanic state. Okay. Um, and so we have a blending of these things. But one, uh, let me just point to one of these that I that I like a lot. Just simply the word "awas." Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife uses that for uh, danger, <clears throat> and and she's always because uh, we have the, you know our three year old daughter, and she's always warning me that something's bad's about to happen. You know, watch out for the refrigerator door or whatever. And she says "awas, awas." <laughs> it means it means careful, be careful. And it really throws me off when, it's, when we're in the swimming pool and she's saying that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of your favorite stories we haven't touched on? Well, the, the one that uh, people seem to like a great deal is, um, is the one, My Valentine, about my daughters. That, that one I did just last Valentine's Day. And everybody seemed to like that one a great deal. And probably uh, the most popular one ever done in terms of shares on social media is mispronunciating in Texas. Mm-hmm. And the one second most popular is the one, and it's kind of a serious piece called The New Immigrants, which um, makes the case that uh, the first undocumented immigrants in Texas were actually Anglo settlers. Of course. That, that moved in without documents. Bunch of Tennesseans, <laughs> right? Um, you, you you mentioned the King Ranch and how uh, the the lady the, the widow saved the King Ranch herself. Yeah, right? Henrietta. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I love that because uh, a lot of times in Texas we you know we focus on the men, 
But here's a case where she ran the King Ranch, Henrietta King ran the King Ranch longer than her husband did by far. She ran it for 50 years after he died. Wow. She doubled the size of the ranch mm-hmm. in her time, and she built essentially uh, uh, the high school in Kingsville, Texas A&M University sits on land that she, Texas A&M University Kingsville sits on land she donated. Mm-hmm. Spahn Hospital is largely in existence because of her philanthropy. So uh, really, I would say as far as transforming uh, th- that part of Texas, uh, she did more than, than her husband did. So we need to look at these strong women of Texas history mm-hmm. uh, as well. Very good. Well, Bill, we've been doing radio since back when we were good looking. <laughs> we did radio commercials, comedic radio commercials at Texas A&M in the 80s, and we worked through this program together, and I've really enjoyed the time for this interview. Uh, good Books Radio is a product of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a service to the community and public radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch us on our YouTube channel at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.